it was about a two-mile square. And Tyler, do you remember going out there and riding? I mean, we probably went two or three times a month. Mom was working at uh, Roger's office, and she was busy, especially during this time of year. And so Dad's like, well, I can take them out to a place where they can ride a horse, and I don't have to hear from them the whole time. So we'd go out there, and we'd ride. And I remember one time we had this, uh, it was like a two-year-old horse, and wild, crazy. We hadn't raised this horse, so most of the horses that we raised, especially from the time they were a, they were a baby, grew up fairly calm. They were socially awkward, but they were calm. Kind of like the Monday's children. But this one we didn't raise. This one we got when she was about two years old. And I remember she was a little bit crazy. And I probably would have been around 10 or 11. And I was out in the field. And Dad had this horse. I don't remember her name. I remember a little bit of what she looked at due to this story. But I remember I was sitting there. And she got loose of her lead rope. And she didn't want to be held down. She didn't like the lead rope. We were trying to train her just to follow with the lead rope. And starting off small. And she jerked away and ran at a beeline straight for a pudgy little thing right there in the path. I have never been pudgy. I am <laughs> somebody's chasing me, run as well, because <laughs> you're going to outrun me and I'm going to be taken. But I remember sitting there and there's this horse charging at me. And my dad, I remember clearly, said something that didn't make sense. He said, stay there. You have to realize this horse was scared to death of us, and she was going to avoid every human being she could. I thought he was a lunatic. I've got this freight train coming at me, so I remember bolting to the right. Well, when I bolted to the right, the horse bolted with me. I remember I left where I was standing, and the horse plowed me over straight into the pasture. We didn't have that horse for long, and I learned a valuable lesson, and I, I didn't stand my ground like my dad had told me to. You know, we as Christians today are often placed into situations where we know what we need to do to make a stand for something, but we don't. I was here yesterday, and I, I, I was scrolling through Facebook, and I found a video. Um, I, I don't remember what it's called, but it was like these woke preachers were kind of the topic of the video. And Watching people in churches touting blasphemy as doctrine and being hailed as something revolutionary. I saw people making comments that Jesus Christ was trans. I saw people from a pulpit declaring that God values the LGBTQ community above anything else. He values them as what they are. Now, I'm not here to spread any kind of hate or, or I guess, they, call, they use the word phobia. I'm not here to say that. The Bible is clear on what it says on those issues. But our world has come to a place where Satan has a stronghold and Christians are bowing to that enemy. Ephesians 6, verse 10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the tools of the devil, the tactics of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Hey, your, your battle you're fighting, it's not going to be against the person. It's not going to be against that neighbor. It's not against, uh, it's not against a soldier or someone who's flesh and blood. It's against principalities, against powers, 
against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You see, we are in a spiritual war, and we are commanded to arm ourselves and fight. But how? How does God, a God who is a loving God, a God who is a holy God, a God who is a righteous God, expect us to fight a battle against an enemy that is far more cunning and more powerful than we are? Here's how. We expect us to fight with God. See, God's going to equip us uniquely in a war that we are going to fight, that we are going to fight, just like he did with this judge. Sam Garth, you're supposed to, if you were to just Google his name and see how many times he's mentioned in the Bible, you'd see he's mentioned twice. Judges 3.31 and then Judges 5, verse 6. Judges 5 is the song of Deborah, and it kind of showcases what's going on in the society of that time, and it showcases the victory. Judges 5, 6 says this, In the days of Samgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were unoccupied, and the travelers walked through the byways. Here's the setting for Samgar. Samgar fought in a time when the main roads, the main highways, the Bible says, of Israel would have been avoided. They would have been avoided due to roaming bands of Philistine raiders and and gangs of thugs and different pirates and whatnot. And trade and commerce would have been slowed due to these travel routes being unsafe. People were making do with minimal supplies. Israel was at a time when peace was no longer an option. Shamgar came to prominence during the time when Israel was being invaded and attacked by their neighbors. If you were to look at a, a map, Philistia, the Philistia nation is just to the south, um, I guess, west of where Israel is, and they would have occupied much of the coast. They controlled a large number of the trade routes in that area. And Shamgar came to prominence during this time when the Philistines, who were known for their brutality, were attacking Israel. The, this, the Philistine nation would have been known to attack travelers and farmers and innocent people. They would have known to pillage cities and pillage villages. And they, would have, they were known to have taken out large um, hubs of trade and weapon making or travel. And what we see is a man caught in a conflict for his home decide to make a stand for God and God's people. My challenge tonight is this. What are you willing to do to see God honored and people follow him? How are ways we can do this? So Shamgar uses four, I'm calling them enemy-conquering facts. Four enemy-conquering facts. Number one, Shamgar had a countercultural lifestyle. Look at that verse, verse 31. And after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath. You know, the Bible is pretty, it's pretty amazing. I heard someone say God is an economist on how he uses words. There's not a word in the Bible that God has put in there that God wasn't completely sure about. And Shamgar, the son of Anath. Here's some interesting, fact, interesting facts about it. Shamgar is a Canaanite name, meaning stranger. What we see is a man who's not even Jewish. Anath, he's the son of Anath. Anath was the Canaanite goddess of war. And in culture, the men born in cities of worship towards this deity would have been given the title the son of Anath. 
So if you were born in one of these cities where an ass was worshipped, you would have been called Shane, son of an ass. You would have been called Jim, son of an ass. You would have been called Jeff, son of an ass. It was a title. So what we see is we see a Canaanite man born in a pagan place, born in a place that was born in a place that worshipped warfare. If you study the worship practices of Anas, the young boys would have been raised to learn how to fight from day one. They would have been bred to be soldiers. They would have been bred to be violent. Violence is part of their culture and their religion. And you see this man was born in this wicked pagan society, but he came to a point where he said, God, I stand for you against your enemy. And God would use his abilities as we'll see. So when we're able to deduce here is that Shamgar was not looked at by the Jewish people as a deliverer. He was not looked at as a person of value by the Israelites. If you study history, the Israelites were very, very hostile towards anyone of any type of descent that wasn't their own. They were very they were very exclusive on who they who they paired with. You see in the New Testament, they would call other people dogs. They would refer to the Samaritan people. So the Israelites would have looked at Shamgar as someone who was not important. He was not looked at in the current social setting as someone of importance or value. He was a stranger. He was different. The Israelites would have considered him lesser, and yet God still used him. The world would like us to blend in a whole lot more. I think we all can verify that. The world would like us, hey, be quiet, have your day, but shut up the other stuff. The world would say, hey, you can worship as you want, but don't, don't go preaching to other people about your religion. The world would like us to blend in more. We need to be more accepting of all lifestyles, they say. Or we just need to show love. That's all we need to do. The world has decided that it should dictate what worshiping God should look like. You see, but God ordained the church to be the thermometer for culture. God called the church, or Paul, under the inspiration of God, called the church the pillar and the ground of truth. You see, the church is valuable. The church is important. But unfortunately, churches have become lazy. Churches have allowed the pressures of Satan and popular culture to make us feel odd, outdated, unimportant, and useless. If you go to church every Sunday morning, you are considered old-fashioned. And that's the that's a old-fashioned America idea. If I was to ask by age, if I was to ask everyone 60 years old and up to raise their hand if they were if they were raised in a church, not I'm not looking at denomination, if you are 60 years and up and you were raised going to a church regularly, raise your hand. I think that's probably a, a huge majority, right? How about this? You are 35 years and younger. Raise your hand if you were, if you were raised going to church regularly. There's a few. And if I asked this question on a Sunday morning, that number would be staggering. Do you realize, because those of you 60 years and old or older have a, have a sense of responsibility towards a religious system. 
You've been raised going someplace, and church has been a priority in your life, and you might not have gone to the, uh, the same type of church, and you might have learned a lot more as you got older in your life, but you were still raised with that. But there's so many people in that age group of 35 years and younger that church is no longer a priority at all. You see, Shamgar did not allow the cynics and the critics to stop him from taking a stand for what he knew was right. Thankfully, God does not know limitations on using someone, and God thrives on using the unexpected to do miraculous things in this world. Here's a few points on Shamgar and how he had this this countercultural lifestyle. He let God define him, not the world around him. Teens, let me tell you this. The world will put you in a box. The world will say you need to do this, you need to act this way, you need to do this when you get out of high school, you need to have this kind of lifestyle, and the world will try to put you into a box, but you need to let God define you, not the world around you. Number two, he followed God despite his background. Let me talk to some of the adults here. Every person in here has baggage. Guaranteed. Every person in here has baggage. We all have something in our past that we like to keep in our past. There's something in our closet that we'd like to keep there. There's something that's happened in our life that we're really not that proud of. The moment you let it define you is the moment Satan has a stronghold in your life. Number three, he ignored cultural barriers that society had created. How many times have you, we, we do this a lot. I, in Lancaster where I went to school, one of the things we did on a regular basis every Saturday morning, I ended up working in the department that organized this, was we did door knocking. How many of you guys have ever done like door-to-door door knocking? Raise your hand. There's a few of us, yeah. It's super awkward. And that's not like, that's, that's like, I'm, I'm a talkative person, but that is knocking on your door at 10 a.m. Hey. It's a little weird, right? But when I talk about door knocking, our mind immediately goes to two other religious groups. Am I right? I don't have to name them, but two other religious groups. And our world has put that into a box of only those two things do that. Now I want you to know that we've done door knocking here before. When I came back from one summer of school, I was, I think, in between my freshman and my sophomore year, I was this zealous college student. I was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to get 35 people saved on my first month at home. I'm going to knock on every door. I want you to knock. I knocked 90% of the doors in Morgan County, or in Port Morgan at least. You know how many people came to church through my day after day watching them knocking? Now, I'm not saying God can't use it. But we have had to be creative on how we reach out in this area. We've not let society dictate our success. But what do we need to do to begin developing a countercultural lifestyle? Well, we need this. The next thing we had was a radical commitment. Shamgar had that counter countercultural lifestyle, but then he had this radical commitment. And after him was Shamgar, the son of, the, of an ass, this stranger, this Canaanite stranger, which slew of the Philistines 600 men. 
the thing I like about the judges is this. The judges didn't start petitions to expel the unbelievers. They didn't say we need to sit down and have a dialogue with the opposing people. Shamgar got up, he fought, and he fought with everything he had. 600 men fell by his hand. The Bible says he personally killed 600 of these men that threatened his home and God's people. Imagine the stamina and strength that this man would have had to do to do this. I look at some. I, I look at my brother. My brother. He's he's a physically active guy. I've seen him. I've seen him carry a sofa by himself, like a three-person sofa. If you want someone to move your furniture, he does take tips. But I've seen him carry a three-person sofa by himself. Tyler's a pretty active guy. Tyler works out a lot. Tyler's always been athletic. From day one, Tyler was definitely the athlete in my family. But I have a feeling Tyler, in all his his athleticism, would get tired after maybe the first 20 or 30 guys he killed. Shamgar killed 600. You see, I imagine he was tired at some points. I imagine he, he thought surrender or retreat was wise due to feeling overwhelmed. He probably kept looking for an end to the onslaught of soldiers coming his way. But he never stopped fighting. I remember when I was a kid, Dad would give us certain jobs to do around the house. And I remember some of them always felt really rough. I think of um, clearing the weeds in the, in the pasture was always a rough one. And I feel like he did it out of punishment. It's like, hey, here's the weed whacker. Go clear out the stalls. He's like, what did I do to piss him off? And I easily found out pretty quick. But I remember going to that job. Have you ever been to a job where you, you look at the start of it, and you're like, there is no way this is going to get done anytime soon. You look at it, and you're like, this is going to take forever. You probably imagine Shamgar sitting there, and we'll look at his ox code here in a bit, and he's standing there with his weapon thinking, when are they going to stop? But he never quit. He was radically committed to what God needed done. Outside of Samson, Shamgar has the most, I guess, enemies conquered by his hand personally in the Old Testament. The commitment and power that these Old Testament characters were able to show when the power of God came on their lives is amazing. But you know we have that same power. 2 Corinthians 2.5 says this, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Our faith should not be in our logic. Our faith should not be in our knowledge. Our faith should not be in the science of today. Our faith should not be in the experts of today. Our faith should be in the power of God. So what is holding you back from doing something special for God? What lie is Satan telling you that is causing you to be less than what God has called you to be? Our world will test our commitment to God. We have people, even in our area, that don't want Jesus to be preached. They're restrictive on what we can and cannot do. But Jesus' word is not going to be stopped. But here's the thing. We cannot if we're not committed to what God has. I'll give you an example. We've had a huge victory in our church in the last couple weeks. 
This is awesome. I can't tell you the precedence this is setting for the church as a whole. At the public schools, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, Heidi, in the public schools, a teacher cannot bring up religious material in class. They cannot discuss it unless a child brings it up first, correct? That, that's the gist of it. That's the, me dumbing down the situation. We have a boy in our Quinn class, in Wendy Crosshobbs' class, and for three years for kindergarten. His teacher told us that he brings up Jesus every day. And we have a teacher who honors God and lets that happen, and she's able to discuss Christ with her students. This little boy has been quoted saying, hey, I've learned about Jesus. My classmates are misbehaving because they don't know who Jesus is. They need to come to Quan and meet Jesus. This little boy has stirred up so much that the school has invited us in to pass out literature at the refreshment time. That's a victory. You know why? Because a small boy, five years old I think, is committed to sharing Jesus. That's a five-year-old. He doesn't understand a whole lot of what's going on in today's society. But he knows this. Jesus changed my life and he can change yours. We need to be committed to learning God's truth. That's what the church is here for. We're here to instruct, teach, and send you out. We're, we need to be committed to standing for that truth. There are non-negotiables in the Bible. This is not a book we can agree to disagree on. There are things God has put in here that is black and white. And like Wes said, the world would like to say that there's a lot of gray areas. There is black and white in here, and God stands for truth. And we need to be committed to sharing that truth. Shamgar had a countercultural lifestyle that made him stand out. He had a radical commitment towards God's calling on him. But that isn't enough. He also knew what he had, and that's an unorthodox method. Shamgar, the son of Anath, went through the Philistines, 600 men with an ox goat. Now, Guy Gould is in here. I like to pick on Guy because Guy herds cattle. Right? Uh, we, I was driving with Dad out to, up to Cabela's the other day, and we drove by a field where we chased a calf for months, 308. And it, this little thing probably made the best steak. I hope I, I, he was not good for anything else. We, we chased him for months, and we never could get him. To tag him, when we're trying to like, give him medicine, tag him here. We, he outran us every time. But if you've ever heard, if you've ever been around cattle, they're kind of stubborn animals. And in this time, an ox goat would have been about an eight-foot tall calf. Would have been made out of wood. It would have been a tall, thick, heavy piece of wood that had a metal dull-ish spike on the end. This isn't meant to stab. This meant to cross. And it would have had a blade on the other side to be clearing out a plow. It was a farm tool. You see, at this point, the Philistine government would have targeted several key areas that destabilized the Israelite government. They would have gone for political leaders' homes to discourage rising up. They would have gone for trade routes to stop supplies from being accessible. And they would have targeted the forges and weapon makers of the Israelites to reduce the weapons going into people's hands. This is probably the reason that Shamgar was using a farming utensil. It was what he had available. 
Jackstone, like I said, was this was this heavy piece of wood with this piece of metal. It wasn't meant to be used for this type of thing. But you see, in God's hand, anything can be used to accomplish His purpose. His purpose. It's a common theme throughout the Old Testament. Joseph was a was the youngest in his family. Was abandoned by his family, sold into slavery, and yet God used him to save the nation of Israel. Jael, who we'll talk about later on, was a housewife. Not 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 diminishing housewives in here. But she was a housewife, but she was responsible for the killing of one of the biggest, or one of the captains of the army. Gideon used pots and torches to destabilize an entire army. Samson used the jawbone of a donkey to kill many Philistines. David was a shepherd boy and ruled Israel. He used a sling and a stone to fell a giant. Mary was a young unmarried woman and raised the Messiah. Even Elisha was bald and God used him. And so you laugh. Sorry, Robin. I got to pick on some people. Joseph's a great story. <laughs> but you see, it doesn't matter how insignificant we deem something or someone. A willing instrument is a powerful weapon in the hand of God Almighty. Do you realize, like I said, we're going to be able to step into a public school and pass out literature? Do you realize that we've got teachers in that school that have tried to propagate the gospel with restrictions. But it was a five-year-old boy who was able to get through that. And there's been a lot of groundwork from our people who've been in the public schools, and they've put, they put foot to their face on it, and they, they've tried to do as much as they can, but this little boy who the world would deem as insignificant is breaking barriers down. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says this, for ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. God will use the little things, the, in, the unimportant things, the despised things. And he's ordained that these things are what he will use in certain certain things to be successful. In that same passage, if you were to go back, for the preaching of the cross to them that perish, is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us, unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. You see, the world does not understand our message. They criticize us. But you see, it's not up to us to change our met- the methodology of God to better suit the changing world. God has called each of us to preach the word, maybe not from behind the pulpit, but each of us has a responsibility to go out and share the gospel in our society. Bible says be instant in season, out of season. And it's through this unorthodox method that we see the world change. You see, here's this, use the tools God's given you. Use the tools God's given you. 
You don't have to go out and try to find something new. You don't have to go out and try to make up something new. God's given you everything you need to see his word propagated. Stand your ground in the place that God has called you. God has put people in your lives for you to reach, and you have to stand your ground. And lastly, focus on the objective, not the work it takes to get there. That was what always got us through those big work trips. Well, hey, we're looking at what's going to happen. We're looking at the future. I remember when we broke ground on this building, I wasn't here. But when we broke ground on this building, I remember coming out here when I was back for break with Dad. And those of you who know my dad, my dad is a, he's a visionary person. He sees something, he plans it, he's got his plan all set. He might not share it till last minute but he has it set. But I remember walking out here with dad and he said, I've, I've got a building here. I've got a parking lot here. I've got housing for retired preachers and widows here. I've got a baseball field here. I've got a shooting range. I've got a picnic area. I've got an orchard here. And he has a vision for what's to happen. And you know what we see? Little by little, that vision is changing. Those of you who are in the old building with us, even even years ago, I saw a picture of the old old auditorium, the fully remodeled, with the awful green carpet, Jake. Oh, it was terrible. And seeing from where that is to running 270 on a Sunday morning, and Mom said it today. She said, yeah, she was talking to Dad. She said, yeah, we were down a little bit. We only had 270. I know, right? <laughs> we never would have thought that. But you see, God has come. God has helped we have had this countercultural lifestyle in our society. We've taken a radical change. We've used unorthodox methods. And we'll get what Shamgar's getting in the last part. He was given a God-honoring legacy. Look at the last part of that verse. And he also delivered Israel. Shamgar has two birthdays. But has the same legacy as any other judge. It's not known what happens to Shamgar after the defeat of 600. But what we do see is what becomes his legacy. He also delivered Israel. We're in a climate today where people are quitting every day. They were once making great spiritual strides in church, but now they are sitting on the sidelines. The person was running their race strong, but now they're giving up. And Satan is on the shoulder of every believer chanting at us to give up. He wants to discourage you. He wants to see you retreat. But God has given us the ability to stand. Ephesians 6 says this, For we wrestle not, like I said, against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, the Bible says, having your loins girt about with truth. We have absolute truth. We went to a meeting a few weeks ago, and it was, about, it was, a, it was a meeting with a bunch of these different counselors, both, both um, like psychologists who were talking, uh, school counselors, uh, secular counseling, that kind of thing, and Went to this meeting, and we left that, and we left a little bit discouraged, I feel like. And Wes made a comment in the truck. 
They're on our way back, and he says, the problem is they do not believe in absolutes where we do. The world doesn't believe in absolutes. Live your truth. I hate that phrase. Live your truth. Truth is not subjective. God has had stuff that we need to stand on. Take Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. That's what's right. Having on the breastplate of righteousness. That's how to live right. God has ways for us to live. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That gospel of peace is our hope, but it's also our motivation. Above all, taking the shield of faith. Do you realize that faith keeps us on the right track? I had someone say this. It was an atheist. He was deba- it, was a, it was on a debate. and This atheist was saying, well, I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe in hell. I, I feel like when we die, we just cease to exist. And you can't prove otherwise. And the creationist was on the other side. He said, you're right. But if you're right and I'm wrong, I don't lose anything. But if I'm right and you're wrong, you're going to regret it. I know I'm right. Because the peace that God's given us is supernatural. And one day we'll be able to see the people we've lost. And that's, that's the hope and the motivation. That's the faith we have for this shield. And wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Ladies and gentlemen, this is our greatest weapon and our greatest tool in this battle. You see, when we do this, we have that countercultural lifestyle with that radical commitment, using God's unorthodox method. He gives us that legacy. When we pick up the fight that God's given us, when we take a stand where we are, with who we are, with what we have, we will find victory. The life of Shamgar is an interesting one. A stranger. A man not of Israel, but was used by God, armed with whatever was available, and stood his ground in the face of opposition. The result? His tail didn't hit him. One day we're going to give an account for what we do on earth. One day the people that have come in here and made commitments and fallen by the wayside and left the race and forsook everything, they're going to give a commitment. And I can't wait, Lord willing, to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. God, within the story of Judges, within this cycle that the people of Israel were in, and we see that you have given the leaders in the time they needed. God, I pray that everyone here decides, you know, I'm going to live, I'm going to live a, a different lifestyle than what the world wants me to live. I'm going to, I'm going to be committed above that which I thought was necessary. I'm going to use exactly the way you want me to use the tools you want me to use. God, I pray that every person in here strives to get praise and glory. We love you, Lord. It's your name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.